I think we need to give uh, deference to uh, those in your congregation first and give them a chance to uh, uh, go after me or to ask you questions if they want to give you a chance to uh, uh, um, uh, uh, elaborate on a point. Okay, um, let me let me set this clock. Let's just go 20 minutes so we yeah, don't keep that going. sounds wonderful. That sounds wonderful. Last night we went on till 11, and people were tired and babies were crying and you. Some of their Okay, um, Brother Arnold, go ahead. When the son cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I don't see how deity could cry out to deity without undeifying himself. comment what comes to my mind is the parable of the vineyard it's either in Matthew or Luke where you have this owner of the vineyard and that's the father and he sends these uh, he, he lets these people take care of his vineyard and he sends these people that are 
supposed to be a typification of the prophets. Mm-hmm. But then when they, they, they you know, beat up and rough up all these people, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm doing my New Living Translation. <laughs> um, finally, he sends his son, and they say, let us seize upon him. This is the heir. I want you to notice that all the prophets could legitimately, being Israel, they could be called sons of Yahweh, sons of God. But specifically, there's one person there in that parable that's given the title son, and that's a reference to the Messiah. That's the heir. And I believe that's because the Father directly begot him. And, of course, I believe that's a reference to the virgin birth, but Mm -hmm. the Father directly begot him, and so he's definitely unique um, in that respect. So, Brother Frankie. Yeah, I know you said one thing. I understand what you said, but it says, I will make you God. You said that was in the Hebrew text. Right, right. Like King James reads like God or as God. Yeah. The Hebrew text right. says, I will make you God. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I guess what, I knew that, I just wanted to clear yeah. it up. Okay. So people didn't know that. Oh, okay. yeah, it, it, and that's true. But also yeah. it turns around and says, and I will make Aaron you. Yeah, I'll make Aaron your prophet, right? Right, and, 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 and so even if the, uh, I think it's Dima is the Hebrew word that's a comparative, like, is missing the idea of a comparative uh, and indeed of agency mm-hmm. is definitely what's being portrayed there. In that uh, uh, Moses, because of the miracles God would do through him and such, would be like God to Pharaoh. He would be the face of God to Pharaoh, as it were. And Aaron, since Aaron's the one speaking for him, takes the role of Moses' prophet. And uh, uh, that is actually a good illustration of one facet of Yeshua's relationship to uh, the Father. Because Moses, remember that one of Yeshua's titles, Deuteronomy 18, is the prophet like Moses. Hmm. What made Moses unique? That, you know, there would be a prophet like him. Other prophets saw dreams, heard visions. Moses spoke to God face to face. And Yeshua, I believe, is the one that he spoke to face to face. The one who knew the Father above all else, even Moses. And you may think I'm overstating that. That's fine. But that's that's what we believe there. I would just say I would agree with Exodus 7.1. I would agree with everything Michael just said except that Moses was talking to Yeshua face-to-face back there in the Old Testament. So, of course, I mean, yeah. I've already, we've already <laughs> went we've on already that. We've already said Gabriel. Um, as far as uh, your reference to uh, the use of the word logos only in the Septuagint, mm-hmm. um, my understanding is that in any language, pretty much, there are word there are words that can be used and have different meanings based on context. So even the word "word" or "logos" mm-hmm. could be used to have different meanings and interpretations based on the context of the surrounding scripture. Absolutely. Not only that, but are we to put more authority on what word was chosen for the Greek translation of the Tanakh or on what the Hebrew? Okay, that's to me. Yeah, I may have I may have not spoken clearly enough on that. Um, I was just pointing out the use of logos before the New Testament period. I would agree that um, definitely the the important part would be on the Hebrew text in the Old Testament. I believe the manuscripts of the Old Testament were originally written in Hebrew, Paleo Hebrew, and so you know Davar, um, Mimra, Aramaic in the Targums. Um, a lot of times when the Scripture will say that Yahweh spoke to them, uh, the Targum will say the word of Yahweh spoke to them. And so I've got no problem with that. I think Michael and I have a pretty uh, uh, similar explanation of God's word. I don't think it's a separate person. I don't think Michael does. Um, I just believe that when that word is manifest or becomes flesh, that the flesh is not one-to-one with God. 
And I gave the, the illustration why I believe that. Well, uh, actually, that's one of the things that I meant to bring out. It's your dad, then. <laughs> Which one is, is Jeremiah? Jeremiah is uh, Judy's son. Okay. Well, yeah, he, I think he's had his hand up yeah. for a long time. Go ahead, Jeremiah. Uh-huh. Okay, and that's directed to me. Okay, um, in Isaiah 42 and 8, Yahweh says, uh, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another, neither my praise to graven images. Specifically in that context, he's referring to the gods of the nations. Um, he does share his glory with his son. When the son comes back, I think it's in Matthew 16, verse 27, He'll come in the glory of His Father. And also when the New Jerusalem comes down, Revelation says it has the glory of Yahweh. So as far as sharing His glory with another, He's, he's talking specifically about not sharing it with the pagan gods of the nations. And the worship issue is that the angels of God do worship the Son in Hebrews 1.6. But when you look at the words worship in Hebrew and Greek, shakah and proskuneo, they, they're varying degrees. Uh, for instance, the, uh, the believers um, in Revelation chapter 3 of the Philadelphian assembly will have those that say they are Jews and are not to come down and bow down before their feet. Literally, that word is proskuneo. The translators translate it as bow down, but it's the same word, worship. But they're not worshiping the believers as, as Yahweh. And so when Yeshua was worshipped, like by the angels, he was worshipped, I, I believe, this is my belief, he was worshipped as the Son of God and not as God. And so if Yeshua was here today uh, in flesh, I could bow down to him and worship him but not as Yahweh God, I would give him homage as the Son. I don't have a problem with that. The, uh, um, as a matter of fact, you're exactly right when, talk, when uh, you have to put... It, it, what's the old saying? A text without a context is a, pretext, yeah. is a proof text for a pretext. Um, and uh, in the case of Isaiah, that's clearly what's in view, is that God's not going to share his honor to pagan gods. And that's in the context of a time when uh, he's sitting there, he's got, you've got God's temple, and you've got all these pagan gods in the courtyard. And around the temple, and the symbolic, symbolically, that could be regarded as well. These are lesser gods that are in the court of the one true God, and God's saying, no, 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 no. I don't like that. You know, I broke this kingdom off from Solomon for that. I'm not going to share my glory with these other gods and you know pretend that they're my suitors when they're my enemies. So that's absolutely true. Now, then that same answer goes into Yeshua addressing the Father as the only true God. Then the Yochanan's writing this. And recording Yeshua's words, and Yeshua was giving those words, knowing that Yehudah was going to record this, by the way, uh, for this, in the context of dealing with a pagan culture. Yeshua is saying there is no other God but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his father. Um, and so uh, the same answer actually uh, covers both issues on that. Um, and your father had one, and why don't we close off with uh, your father? Seems like Denise, did you have one too? Oh, okay, did you? okay, we'll, okay I'm we'll sorry. Take that case, let's take both of them. I'm sorry, there. Into the Son of Mary. Um, I do not believe so. It, it, it gets difficult because that comes into a what if question, and I'm very, I'm always leery about what if questions. Um, but the fact is that God's if you're asking whether God ever did manifest in that respect, no, because that would take away from His monogenous. If, if, if Yeshua is pre-incarnate, wouldn't it? Couldn't you 
hurt himself his humanity at any point in time that he wished, uh, thereby bringing about his punishment. He could have, yes. God picked him. However, one of the things it says that he was revealed in the fullness of time. So apparently God had a special particular time uh, 2,000 years ago, which was the precise time to have his uh, son manifest mm-hmm. uh, in that sense. Um, before that, I believe he manifested as the visible glory of God, but not in the incarnate form which shared our, our infirmities and uh, died for our sins. I guess I would say feasibly that it was possible, but I believe that, you know, as Galatians 4, four says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. If I'm understanding the question right, Dan, um, of course, I don't believe that Yeshua was pre-incarnate. Right. Well, let me say it like this. As a, as a separate center of consciousness, I believe that you could say that he existed as God's word, uh, but that doesn't mean he was there personally. And so when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son. And notice the son is said to be made of a woman, which mm-hmm. Michael would agree with me. The son doesn't have a pre-existence as the son, which is something, by the way, that Trinitarian theology is adamant about. And Michael would disagree with that, and I would too. So They're being, they're being highly imprecise in drawing, unfortunate, uh, drawing yeah. uh, extra implications. It's because of just using the Trinitarian formula, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and therefore Son becomes, uh, becomes um, uh, defined as the whole existence of uh, what, we, what we at Beth HaMashiach refer to as the Shekinah. But that ends up being imprecise and uh, opens the way for, uh, quite rightly, for you to take them to task for uh, uh, yeah. misdrawing that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Denise. Uh, Denise. I have a kindergarten simple answer question. Maybe it's too hard if you answer the first one for either one of y'all. Okay. Uh, do you believe that Yahshua is a spirit also? Michael, I left you. You want to go? In what, I, I in what say, sense? Do I mean, you know, it says that, um, I would, you want me to answer that first? Um, either way is fine. I, mean, I don't believe that Yeshua is spirit. I believe that God's spirit dwelt within Yeshua, the fullness. But I believe Yeshua is, is a man, flesh and, flesh and blood. Has spirit? Yes, and has the spirit, yes. I actually, uh, <laughs> I actually agree with him on, uh, in, in terms of how he's phrased that answer. Uh, that's actually pretty much what we, we teach here, that we're dealing with the fullness of God's spirit dwelling in a man. The, uh, one of the, one of the uh, one, so far we've got two areas that um, we're uh, that uh, we actually disagree on. One is uh, whether the word of God was existing as potentiality or actuality before Yeshua's birth, and the second one is okay when we're dealing with Yeshua, uh, do, does he have in a, does he have like his own human spirit and then God's spirit in combined with that? Yeah, and that's what I one would, same. Yeah. And you would you would argue that you know, he's got human spirit and God's spirit. Right. I can see that point because you know you've got the Holy Spirit descending on him at one point, mm-hmm. um, but I also believe that he was um, born the Son of God, born the special creation of God, and I, I, I'm leery of falling into what's called adoptionalism, where you know the idea that he was anointed the Son of God when the Spirit came upon uh, him, before that he was just a man. And that's that's no, the implication. Yeah. Now and I know that's not the implication yeah. you draw from that, um, sure. that but uh, that's why I went ahead and brought it up so that on record it wouldn't be confused that way. Sure. Um, but uh, we we actually agree on that point. Where uh, I'm finding as we go through this debate, the areas we actually disagree on are substantial, but they're few. There are a few points that are substantial, and they're they're key points. 
But it's not that we're disagreeing on absolutely everything. Right. Um, I actually run into this with uh, uh, Trinitarians, too. It's like, look, I agree with you on X, Y, and Z. I disagree on the language of this and this. Why, oh, you're a heretic. No. <laughs> Listen to me. <laughs> and I know you get, to, you get into that, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah the second part, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which I know that it's meaning, um, I, it may have a two-part meaning, meaning that, yes, he did come as a, in a version as flesh, mm-hmm. but it sounds to me like, or it could read, has come in the flesh as if he was God. And, okay, know, I, I'll, I'll take I'm that one first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's an excellent question. I'm, yeah, glad, actually, that, I'm yeah. glad that verse got brought up. Generally, how I used to think was that that verse was saying, unless you believe that God manifested himself in the flesh. You know, I, I used to take a more oneness, mm-hmm. Pentecostal position, modalistic position. Um, but that verse, Denise, in context, and I don't know if Michael agree with that or not, that verse is talking about that people have to believe that he's a man. Yeah, during, saying, yeah, during, during that time, there was a group of people called the Docetists during the writing of the Epistle of John. They didn't believe that Yeshua was really a man. They told stories of Yeshua walking on the footsteps there of Jerusalem and he wouldn't leave footprints because he really just appeared to be flesh. And that's where they get the word docetist is from the Greek word dokain, which means he seemed to be flesh. And John's telling us that if you don't believe that Yeshua is come in the flesh, if you don't believe he's a man, then you're anti-Messiah. So I don't, I don't think personally that the verse has anything to do with about, about God manifesting himself in flesh. Now there's a passage in Timothy there's a little manuscript variant there. I have no problem saying that God manifested himself in the flesh in the person of his son. But that passage, I think, is referring to you have to believe that Yeshua is a man. Actually, yeah, I think a little bit of historical background. You did a great job with bringing in uh, docetism. Um, what, one of the problems that the uh, early ecclesia ran into was Greek philosophy. Uh, Hebrew philosophy does not see the world, the matter, the physical world as evil. God created it and called it good. Now, it has become corrupted, but it's not evil in and of itself. Greek philosophy from the time of Plato believed that matter was evil, and some Gnostics even said that the material world was created by an evil demiurge, not the true spiritual God. And therefore, they created this dichotomy between spirit, good, and matter, evil. And so when you deal with this Gnostic heresy called docetism, which says that he only appeared to come as a man, okay, the reason they're doing that, interestingly enough, is that they understood that he was deity. The early, the early arguments were never that Yeshua was just a man or, or anything like that. They were, uh, that was later Arianism. The original arguments was that he wasn't human. And so they would say, they were, and they, there were two different ways this took it. One was Docetism to say that he was just sort of an image that appeared. God was just sort of projecting an uh, illusion. Hologram. A hologram, yeah. Um, or, that, or that the Christ... Yeah, you know, the spirit or whatever was separate from the body. And for those who you know play video games, was playing a first-person shooter. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you've ever played those kind of games where you're running around and you're like looking, as it were, through the character you're playing, and the character gets hit by a sword or a gun or something like that, you see the screen go red, you see the life meter go down a little bit, but you don't feel anything. You're not actually there. You're, it's not. Uh, you're not a. Um, uh, you're not an active participant. You're just controlling the avatar from afar. And that's the way some of the Gnostics um, portrayed uh, Yeshua. As a matter of fact, there's a thing called the Cross Gospel, which portrays the Christ uh, as hovering over the crucifixion, laughing that the silly humans thought they could hurt it by de- uh, destroying its puppet. And that's the actual word used there, is puppet. Um, so this 
took off very, very early. And so Yochanan, or John, when he's writing this, is actually writing against that, writing against this idea that, no, he couldn't really have come in the flesh because that would be because that would be mingling good spirit with evil matter. Saying, no, if they're saying that, they're not from God. They're from the spirit of the Antichrist. They're from the spirit of the adversary who's trying to confuse people about the fact that, no, this is a real man in history, physical, real, uh, who shared in all of our infirmities and who died for our sins. Nevertheless, remaining perfect in, in, in all of his doings and all of his ways, um, and I think that because of the implied argument against it, that also that is an argument for the belief that Yeshua is deity. Otherwise, you know, it, it doesn't uh, create as big of a problem in the mind of the Gnostics. But it's not an absolute proof, and again, that's why I didn't use it on that one because it, it's one of those that the historical background can lend towards it, but it wasn't the evidence I wanted to go after. So. One of, the, one, one of the interesting things with was uh, the way the Pharisees reacted to him. And I shouldn't say the Pharisees as a group, because the Pharisees were divided into at least two major schools, and there were a great many Pharisees that kept inviting Yeshua over for dinner. I mean, they considered him a, a, a one of their sects, because Pharisees didn't eat the non-Pharisees. Um, and we find in general that when Yeshua's arguing, the arguments taken by the Pharisees are taken by the school of Shimei, and in general, he's siding with the school of Hillel. There are a couple of notable exceptions. And so we don't want, I'm just getting on the record that not all Pharisees are bad, but there was a group of them that he was arguing one day about the matter of what can be done on the Sabbath. Shortly thereafter, he heals a deaf-mute man. Now, uh, er, er, exercises cast a demon out of a deaf-mute man. And that by itself was a sign that the Messiah had come because it was believed that only the Messiah could um, cast a demon out of a deaf-mute man. Because the normal, the normal procedure was to command the uh, demon in the name of Hashem, in the name of Adonai, to give up its name. And after they had the name, they were made out by its name in the name of Adonai to leave, just like Yeshua did with Legion, by the way. And uh, But if it held the person mute, they couldn't get it to give up its name. And so they didn't know what to do with stuff like that. And they believe, it was actually believed that only the Messiah could pull that one off. But when Yeshua does it, he does so without calling him the name of Adonai. He just says, get out. And it leaves. And that freaks them out. And that's when they start accusing him of Satanism, basically, being, uh, of doing it by the power of Beelzebub. And, it, the, uh, uh, and that implies an incredible authority on par with Adonai. Now, I think Matt would argue that that's a, a derived authority by the fact that he's his son. Right. But it definitely puts him as more than a prophet. <laughs> Absolutely. I would, I would, all I can say is that Yeshua is a man. The Bible calls him a man. Mm-hmm. He says in John 8... Um, why do you want to kill me, a man that have told you the truth? He refers to himself as a man. But to say that he's just a man or a mere man, I, I definitely wouldn't say that in, that in those words because he's a very unique man. Mm-hmm. You know, he was begotten by the Heavenly Father. As to why he could do the miracles, Acts chapter 10, verses 38, uh, or verse 38, it says, You know of Yeshua of Nazareth, how God anointed him, notice God and Yeshua are separate, with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So that's how he could do that. Mm-hmm. And many, many people in the Old Testament, like Elijah, Elijah raised the dead by the power of God. Elijah prayed and didn't rain for three and a half years by the power of God. 
Um, when Moses kind of pull it off again, apparently when, when he comes Moses, back the next return. <laughs> when Moses stood there at the Sea of Reeds there and he stretched out his rod, he said, "Stand still and see the salvation of Yahweh." Imagine the people of Israel looking at this man Moses, who had a very intimate relationship with Yahweh, and thinking, "Man, what a prophet!" You know, Moses wasn't just a man. You know, he was definitely a unique man, not as unique as Yeshua. Yeshua is the head of every man. First Corinthians eleven three. But the fact that he did many miracles wouldn't prove that he's God. It would prove that God was with him in a mighty way. And, and matter of fact, I was saying the most mighty way. The, the, the fact that Yeshua did miracles shouldn't throw anyone off. The thing that, uh, is, uh, uh, that amazes people that actually look into it is the authority with which he did them. The fact that he didn't call... <laughs> I see my mom trying to drag down hands back there, so I'm sorry I'll finish up at this point. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and it's one of the things that I wanted to I wanted to cite, and it's in the computer, which has no power. So uh, I'm going to try to do this vaguely from memory. There's there's a uh, Hebrew scholar, uh, a Jewish scholar named uh, Jacob Neusner. He's actually put out uh, the translations of uh, translation of the Talmud, which is not the most scholarly. There are better ones, but it's a very good handy. Uh, translation for uh, if you're just going at the lay level and that kind of it's actually the one I keep on PDF on my computer for quick searches. Um, he uh, he's done numerous works on that, and he was talking about person Yeshua. He's like he says, look, the teachings you're sure are not the problem. The problem is the way he speaks. Rabbis speak in the names of uh, in the name of an rabbi, or else they cite the scripture. He comes along and says, well, you have heard, quotes the Torah, and then turns around and says, but I say to you, and then one ups it. What kind of man comes along and one-ups the Torah in his own name? And that's the, and that and, and he concludes by saying, so we see it is not the teachings of Yeshua that are the problem. It is the person of Yeshua. And that, I think, speaks volumes about his authority and that kind of thing. And, sure, and, and, sure. I, and I know Matt agrees 100%. Again, we are, a lot of what our areas of disagreement are not covered by, the, by several of the uh, uh, passages that we're talking about here uh, because they can be read either way. But uh, both of us agree he's not just a man. And that's, right. It's a straw man. To say that, well, if he's not, if you say he's not uh, God in the flesh, that he's just a man. No, he's not saying that at all. Right. And I, I, I want to make, make that clear on that. He's not saying he's just a man. He's just he, uh, our disagreement is a high-level theological disagreement about what it means that he's the Word of God. Um, does it mean that he had a pre-incarnate existence? Is he what the rabbis call the Shekinah, the divine presence, the visible presence of God? Uh, but he's by no means saying he's just a man. He's acknowledging fully. He's thus uh, only begotten, the special generated Son of God. We're just having some disagreements right. about the full implications of those words. Right. Okay. Um, John. John's had his hand up for a long time, I know. Okay. He seems like such a nice guy. Right. Uh, and even just letting my parents get here before they collapse. Uh, <laughs> and probably yours too. Uh, uh, we, we've had John's hand up, Sarah's hand up. Gabe, you already had a question. Is it short? Yeah. Okay. Then Let's let, go John, let, Sarah, and then we'll let Gabriel finish it out. All right. Cool. Okay, uh, real interesting point. Uh, two places over in Acts. One is in Acts 2, the other one's Acts 7, stoning Stephen. Uh, Peter is talking to them in uh, Acts 2, and he's quoting from the Psalms. In uh, Acts 2.24, God has raised him up and freed him from the suffering of death. There's a gospel of the death of Peter and Bolden. Where David says, I see Adonai always before me. He is at my right hand that I will not be shaken. For this reason, my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, that now my body, too, will live on in certain hope that you will not abandon me in shell, nor let the Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the way of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then he says that uh, David died, and all those prophets died. But what he was doing was prophesying 
about the coming of his of the Messiah, mm-hmm. whose God would not allow his body to decay, yes, but raised him up. So not to prove one thing against another, but to say that when he's talking about Adonai here, or the Lord, which is just too commonly used, he's talking about the Messiah. He he was able to rest in hope because he saw him at his right hand. Stephen makes the same statement when they're stoning him. I see the heavens open. Mm-hmm. Yeshua at the right hand of the Father. And it goes back and alludes to what Elise talking about, about God being God's right hand is not too short to save. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure which one of this is directed to. You want first tips? Uh, yeah, the the um, the only disagreement I would have, I think that was excellent the way you put that, John. The only disagreement I would have is that I believe that Adonai would be separate from the Holy One. Um, when David said uh, Adonai or Yahweh is at my right hand, I think he's referring to the Father there. But then when David speaks of himself. And I think he's prophesying, like you said, of someone that's going to come out of his loins, as Peter goes on to explain. He's referring to Yeshua. And so uh, David is deriving his authority and power from Yahweh the Father. Then he says, but you will not leave my soul in hell or my descendant in hell. And which this goes back to the, the dead issue. And you notice the text says that David hath not ascended into the heavens, mm-hmm. which shows that when we die, our spirit doesn't go to heaven and live, but we sleep in the dust until the resurrection. Which is another subject, but I thought I might add that sure. in. Um, one th- uh, I would uh, disagree with you on the, the significance of the Holy One because by the first century, the Holy One was an appellation applied only to God. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, it, as you go through the uh, rabbinic literature from that period, uh, it, it, and as a way of not saying the Tetragrammaton, they will say, but the Holy One, blessed be He, in other words, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, um, as an appellation for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they weren't using His name. So for Peter to quote in that context the first century audience, I believe would amount to a uh, argument for Yeshua's um, uh, implicit and uh, intrinsic uh, deity there. The uh, let's hit the right hand issue though. That's one I actually uh, failed to uh, uh, hit as well as I would have liked. Um, when we talk about someone being at the right hand, we're talking about authority, not locality. Uh, it, it, when uh, Joseph was put at the right hand of Pharaoh, does that mean that he was constantly sitting right at the right hand of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was always on his left? No. No, Pharaoh wasn't there when his brother showed up, for example. What it meant was that he was, uh, as a matter of fact, Pharaoh defines it for us, when he says, in all ways you will be like me, only in regards to the throne will I be greater. In other words, I'm still Pharaoh, but you can do anything I can do. I will rubber stamp anything you, you say. I will not even question it. Mm-hmm. He was acting as Pharaoh's agent. So when it speaks of Yeshua being at the right hand of God or the right hand of the Father, uh, both phrases are used. It's not saying that, therefore, he must be physically located differently. In a sense, he is, because he still has his body, his human body. But the inference of that that we draw is the fact that he has all of the Father's power. The Father is still the Father. The Father is still greater than he, it is, and there's still a derived authority. There's still a downward flow of authority. But he does everything the fa- he can do the, everything the Father can do in, uh, on behalf of our. He acts as God. You can and you know I, I draw the inference from that that God doesn't is not going to share that with another. But uh, you can argue it the other way as well. Um, yeah, you're and, preaching and, now. That's I mean you know that's great. I've used that exact same analogy of the Pharaoh Joseph issue. I, all I would say is that. You know, I agree that right hand is not not always a reference to locality, but it is always a reference to two individuals. Anytime you have the right hand of someone, you're talking about a separate individual. So Joseph wasn't always at the right hand of, of Pharaoh, but while Joseph had that position, you know, he had a functional equality with Pharaoh. He could function as Pharaoh. 
he put the signet ring of Pharaoh on his finger. He let him ride in that second chariot. Mm -hmm. While Joseph was in this position, his brother Judah, I believe it's in Genesis 44, made the statement that Joseph was equal with Pharaoh. Not that he shared the same substance, but because Pharaoh had given him that full authority. And I would argue that it's the same with Yahweh and Yeshua. The reason mm -hmm. Yeshua can do all this, like Michael has just put awesomely, is because Yeshua was given that authority from the sure. Father. That's, that's the reason why that particular argument can go either way. The question is, did he lay down authority to pick it back up again, the way he laid down his life to pick it back up again? Or did he, uh, or was he, you know, started off uh, as a human, albeit son of God, and then was raised up to that authority? I argue based on, among other things, Philippians chapter 2, the, the, the emptying of himself. He starts off in the form of God, but he empties himself to become human. That he had an authority, he had a majesty, laid it down, and then picked it back up again. Uh, Matt argues the opposite on that. Again, our, our primary argument is on what it means that he's the only begotten of Father, what it means when, that he's the Word of God. The other uh, scriptures, you uh, then have to, uh, you can then read in that light, but uh, things like that, you can actually read either way depending on the situation, depending on where your, your start, starting point is. That's where we uh, have to get back yeah. to what is the starting point of Yeshua. And that's, that's what tonight's, tonight's one, debate and last night's yeah. debate has been all about. Just one quick point. I don't mean to, we need to get to the question. Yeah. I, for, I forgot it and just thought about it in reference to the Holy One. There was one instance where Yeshua was going to cast out demons and the demon spoke and said, What have we to do with thee, Yeshua, thou Holy One of Yahweh, or thou mm -hmm. Holy One of Adonai? So Yeshua is the Holy One of Yahweh. He's not the Holy One of Israel, like Yahweh is referred to time and time again in the Tanakh. So whilst Yahweh could be called the Holy One um, in a unique way, Yeshua was referred to even as the demons as being the Holy One of Yahweh. So he was Yahweh's sent agent as the Holy One of Yahweh. So. Okay, Sarah. Well, um, I, that's, I think that's great what you just said. Um, I would just put it in, for me, um, I heard a preacher one time say that God loved the world so much that he didn't send somebody else. He came himself and, and died on the cross. But I would argue that that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, John 3.16 says God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. Um, if there was a situation, if I try to think about this in my own mind, if there was a situation where I could save Michael and I had to either die myself or let my son die, I would die myself hands down a dozen times or more you know, throughout the rest of my life before I, before I would give my son. But God demonstrated his love that he had for us and that he allowed his son to be put to death on the cross. And it was typified in the situation on Mount Moriah with Abraham and Isaac, where God told Isaac, you take your only begotten son, who he was Abraham's only begotten through the chosen wife, Sarah. Um, Abraham had other sons, Ishmael, but he was the one through Sarah. And so in that, that typification, we see that Abraham 
um, was going to sacrifice uh, Isaac, who we think of as a little child, but he was. Uh, most sources say he was probably in his late thirties when when Isaac was going to be sacrificed by Abraham. Mm-hmm. And so here we have a grown man, and he says, "Bind me tight," according to the Book of Jasher. You know, and their their tears are streaming down, and, and Abraham's going to sacrifice his son. I think we see a type of that in what the ultimate thing that God did. And so I identify with with Christ as as the Son of God. That God loved me so much that he was willing to let his son suffer and die for my sins. And not only did Yeshua die for us, he, he did, and that's great, but he also lived for us. We can never separate, and this may be another subject, but uh, we can never separate the sacrificial death from the sinless life. If Yeshua would have ever broken one jot of the Torah, he couldn't have died for our sins. So he had to live a sinless life so that his righteousness could be imputed to us, so that when we stand before God, we don't have to say, here I am. You know, and say, well, weigh my good with my bad because that doesn't work with God. He punishes bad. But when we stand clothed in the robe of Christ, he says, you can enter in. You're in, you're in my son. So. Uh, the counterpoint to that is when Yeshua says to his uh, disciples, no man has greater love than this, but that he lays down his life for his friends. Yeah. Yeshua was the one who laid down his life. If indeed the Father had no part of that, the Father is so separate. That implies that Yeshua has greater love for his disciples and the Father. And I don't believe that. If Yeshua is separate from God, if he's not, if he is a different being, a different substance, then that means that this human, who happened to be born of God, had greater love than God himself. I don't believe that for one moment. And, that's, and that is one of the implications that, uh, we, that, is, uh, that comes out of um, a belief that uh, a, a separation, an, an over-separation of Yeshua from the Father. And that's why we term Yeshua the Shekinah of God, the divine presence. The Shekinah has never been seen as a separate part from God, but it has sometimes been referred to as almost as if a separate part of God. For example, when they actually say the divine presence, the Shekinah of God, on the one hand you can say, well, that means he's of God, so he can't be God. But on the other hand, then Shekinah is described by Rao, as you heard me read uh, Abraham Cohen. Um, as the part of God that enters into the creation. Um, I believe that God, yes, he gave up his son. He loved his son. He loves his son. But he also uh, gave up his own life for his friends through his Shekinah. And then gave, and then we're out of here. Okay, where it says, I saw um, Shekinah, or glory, and the Messiah sitting at the right hand. The way I interpret that is the same way to say that Right now, I see um, the son and the minister sitting, standing at the left side. You're still identifying, to, it's still specifically talking about one person, mm-hmm. but identifying that one person from multiple perspectives. Okay. And that's, that's um, how I interpret that scripture. Sure. Right? So, what's so the question? I would. How you would see yeah. that from that light. I mean, I would just say that any time we look in the Bible at the phrase, the right hand of, whether it's spiritual, whether it's not locality, but just power, it, uh, it doesn't matter. Anytime we see somebody at the right hand of another person, it implies two individuals. It doesn't imply one. That part, but I'm just saying that you were saying that the glory was separate from the Messiah. Right. But, but, but the, he wasn't at the right hand of the glory. He was at the right hand of the Father. It was saying the glory and the Messiah at the right hand of the Father. Well, that could be... There are some passages that says he's at the right hand of the Father. There's other passages that said he's at the right hand of God. Um, 
The ones that would say he's at the right hand of the Father, to me they prove he's not the Father. The ones that say of God, prove he's not God. Hebrews 8 says he's at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Right. I and I believe he has his own throne in heaven. He right. talks about his own throne in Revelation. I guess what I was trying to refer to is that the Shekinah is considered part of God. Right. Um, so if, if it's really saying that Yeshua being the glory and the Messiah at the right hand of God, then he's still, by definition of Shekinah, part of God. Yeah, I think I've already given that. I think, I think we're giving that. Uh, uh, the other thing I'd point out is that um, the same place in Revelation where it says, I will give him, uh, him to sit on my throne as I sit on my father's throne. Right. So he actually equates his throne with his father's throne. It's not two, not two thrones. I would take issue with that. But Solomon, okay. even Solomon in First Chronicles 29, sits on the throne of Yahweh, it says. doesn't mean that he is Yahweh. No. And so when he says, my throne and my father's throne, that's definitely two thrones, not one. Hmm. Uh, the... Uh, since he says on my father's throne, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with that one. But the um, again, the matter is, where does he get his authority from? Is it merely derived, or is it also intrinsic? Um, and I think we'll stop there. Thank you everyone for coming and staying for the extended question and answer section. I know we went at least twice as long as we intended to. <laughs>